0: Hello and welcome to the National Museum's Liverpool podcast regarding the present. I'm Jane Garvey. Now, there are six episodes in this series, each one exploring a different theme with voices and experiences from the present and from the past, reflecting just some of the incredible stories in the museum's collections, programmes and communities. And we are spoilt for choice. There are so many stories There are, after all, four million objects in the museum's collections. There's the Museum of Liverpool, the World Museum, the Maritime Museum, the International Slavery Museum, the Walker Art Gallery, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, and Sudley House. There's much to enjoy and a lot to learn. Our earlier episodes looked at the themes of love and resilience, but in this one, the theme is work, or the search for it. As we'll hear later, Liverpool is still often lazily linked to unemployment. But if you grew up on Merseyside in the late 70s and 80s, you'll definitely know why. But we need to talk more about how the people of the area fought for work or tried to equip others for the workplace. And there's more about that later. You'll also hear about a really talented 17th century female artist, largely forgotten now, who had to work to provide for her family when she was really young. First, the story of Police Sergeant Christian Owens, who rather understates the challenges he's faced in his professional life, as the first person to transition whilst working for Merseyside Police. Here's Ellie Field.
1: Working in the police force is initially a scary career path to go down. Every shift, you are facing the unknown. But imagine working in this field whilst taking on a huge life change.
2: So, I joined the police on the 26th of October, 1994. So, I've seen a lot of changes during my time, and particularly with my journey, I suppose. But yeah, I've been a detective since 2006. And more recently, the current role that I'm in is uh, the Force Community Engagement Unit. So that enables me to engage right across Merseyside with with all diverse communities, including uh, the LGBT plus community. This is Sergeant Christian Owens. In 2014,
1: he started openly transitioning whilst working for the Merseyside Police Force.
2: It's been an interesting journey with ups and downs. And it's something that I speak very openly about and that I don't hide to protect anybody because otherwise we're never going to learn from what we're doing and make it better. So for me, I was the first serving police officer to transition in Merseyside as a force. So nobody had gone before me. So there were no guidelines or nothing to benchmark my journey against. So it was difficult at the beginning it still is not as bad as it was but it's still quite a male macho environment and um, I think what I found was that we just we just weren't equipped to deal with my journey from a knowledge point of view or an education point of view um, and processes as well I suppose you know policies and procedures so for me it's been a steep learning curve. And I think for everybody involved, it's been a steep learning curve. But I like to talk very positively about it as well, because I think from that learning, it's created a lot of progress and a lot of positive development of the organisation. So much so that today I feel that we are probably leading the way for for, for other police forces and organisations that are separate to the police force. It's taken time to get to where we are today. But for me, I feel that my journey within the organisation has helped so much. And I think that's why I love doing what I do so much, because I know how much it's helping. I know how much it is assisting us to just progress so much. And, you know, I get contacted by... Other forces, so regionally and nationally, asking for support, advice, guidance, because they clearly don't have it in their own force. And these are big police forces like Greater Manchester, you know, so that's a real honour and a privilege to me. So I would describe the first two years as being very painful, hiding away at times, just not feeling strong enough to deal with what was happening. And I think a lot of that was due to just ignorance, ignorance a lack of understanding of what a trans person goes through and because of that being you know people were unable to support me properly and then I suppose I turned that around a little bit once I felt strong enough to do something about it so yeah about 2014 that's when I first found my voice I suppose (laughs) and I started to use my voice to educate people and that's That's what I do today. That's what I love doing um, because Mm. I can see see the changes. I can see the positive change and it just spurs me on to do even more.
1: In 2020, Gallup, an LGBT plus anti-violence charity, surveyed 227 trans people and found that four in five had experienced a form of transphobic hate crime and one in four had experienced transphobic physical assault or the threat of physical assault. Christian Owens is taking on a huge role in the Merseyside Police Force by educating all the new recruits on how to confront their own prejudices and how to deal with
2: trans-related hate crimes. So I deliver a trans awareness workshop to every new recruit that starts in Merseyside Police. So at the beginning of their journey, they get to see me for two hours and we talk just like we're talking. They get to ask questions And I also do that for more established officers and staff across the force. And yeah, I've had people, you know, say to me, I really did not understand your life or your journey. And I feel now that I'm more equipped to go out and speak to people and to not make mistakes and to understand what's right to say and what's maybe inappropriate to say. So... People kind of say those things to me all the time, and just a couple of weeks ago i um I did the first class of the new police officer apprentice degree apprenticeship scheme and um these are brand new officers i think twenty three weeks in in the job and uh one of them emailed me later that night after the presentation. And he just said, I just felt that I had to get in touch with you and to explain the impact of the session that we had today. I think the words that really hit home were that he said to me, if I could be half the person that you are and have half the career that you've had, I'll be ecstatic. And I just thought that somebody starting out on his journey in an organization that is now so much more aware and self-aware and has so much more understanding that hopefully he won't make mistakes and hopefully he'll be able to just engage more appropriately with people and have a more successful career and feel like a better person for it. So I think I I do get comments like that all the time, to be honest, and um, it's so so satisfying and rewarding for me. And it's not just from other people that maybe don't understand the journey, it's from other trans and non-binary people as well who are maybe struggling. Uh, and again, a couple couple of weeks, a month ago, somebody that doesn't even know me from another police force, a southern police force, just DM'd me on Twitter and said, I've just started out, I'm a probationary constable and I'm really struggling. And I was starting to think that maybe this isn't the career for me as a trans person. And having seen... What you're doing on Twitter and your visibility, it's made me realise that it is and that I can do this. And for me, that's, it just blows me away. You know, I just think just by me tweeting and and saying, this is what I'm doing today, it gives people strength uh, to, to just be themselves.
1: In 2018, there were only 14 recorded trans police officers in the UK. And Christian believes a crucial reason why is
2: representation and trust so often people kind of come to me and say, why aren't there any trans and non-binary people? You know, we've managed to increase kind of um, gay visibility uh, quite a lot over the years, but for trans and non-binary people, it hasn't happened. And people ask me that question all the time. I ask myself that question all the time. And I think it is it is down to visibility, um, because if people can't see anybody else like them doing that job, automatically they're going to think, am I going to be able to do that job? Or if they do tentatively try it and then all of a sudden think, I don't see anybody else like me, um, they haven't got the support in place. So then they kind of waver and think, I'll leave. So you've got the retention issue as well. So I think where you are gonna solve that is by people like me talking about it, because I'm so proud of what I do.
3: Mm.
2: Do you know, I've had the most amazing experience and opportunity and career over 26 years. And I want to talk about that, you know, and I also want to break the barrier down of some people thinking you can't be a police officer if you're trans, because I do face that still a lot in our communities. You know, I go to... A lot of youth groups within Liverpool and there's a lot of resistance there and it's almost like they feel that I can't be part of the trans community because I wear a uniform and that for me is quite difficult to, to take, if I'm honest. It's quite yeah. emotional for me because I'm not defined by my uniform. I am a person. And when I get home, I do take my uniform off and I want to be part of my community just as much as any other person. So to feel that kind of resistance sometimes kind of does hurt. So again, that's something else that kind of makes me kind of really push forward, really, to break those barriers down so that people mm-hmm. can see, actually, you know, you can, you can be trans and be a police officer, Christian Owens' relationship to work has been over
1: 25 years long, tough and complicated. But instead of giving up, he found a way to use his lived experience to make a change and now strives to bridge that
0: gap between the LGBT plus community and the police force. Ellie Field on Christian Owens, who found his voice in 2014 and now uses it to help others by breaking down barriers and being true to himself in and out of work. We're all looking forward to a return to our old way of living, to be with other people again, to be inspired, even irritated by them. Daniel O'Connor is a long-suffering Evertonian who can't wait to get back to Goodison, but he knows it won't be long before things are back to normal.
4: When this pandemic is over and we are back amongst the crowds, at concerts, in pubs, in theatres, at sporting events, we imagine this sort of collective euphoria. But I give it less than ninety minutes before this joy, this bonhomie for our fellow Britons, is eradicated at a football match involving Liverpool, Everton, or Tramier. Having been a season ticket holder on the Blue Half of Merseyside for over twenty five years, I know full well that if the game's around Christmas time, the away supporters, be they from London, Manchester, the Midlands, or the Northeast, they'll be singing Feed the Scousers. Or alternatively, Sign on to the tune of You'll Never Walk Alone. There's nothing that unites the red, white and blue of Merseyside, quite like the exasperation felt in these chants. Many come from fans of teams in cities with much higher levels of unemployment. But the truth is that the association between Liverpool and unemployment is difficult to shake. We don't have to look too hard to see why either. Yoza Hughes's famous giz a job catchphrase, from Alan Bleasdale's Boys from the Black Stuff, remains in the public consciousness more so than perhaps the BBC series itself. It depicted the impact of the recession of the 70s and 80s on Liverpool, a city that had seen its docks decimated and was witnessing the closure of factory after factory. The Tate and Lyle refinery had dominated the city's skyline for over 100 years. Its demolition is poignantly played out in the final scenes of Boys from the Black Stuff. is a former senior lecturer in history at Liverpool John Moores University.
5: We have to think in terms of not just the 1,500 people who were victims of its closure in 1981, but their families and indeed the whole community. It was a double whammy in the sense that you'd also had the closure of British American Tobacco Company in Commercial Road. And if you top together the closures in terms of numbers, then of course we're talking about 3,000 people there was a big hole in the Vauxhall community. I think it's very important to take into account that when the closure decision was made, 1,500 people obviously lost their jobs, but it was an ageing labour force. So to use the term scrappy sums up the plight of many other people in that devastated community.
4: By 1985, Liverpool's unemployment rate exceeded 20%, twice that of the national average. But this struggle in the 80s was nothing new. A 1993 painting, that Hangs in the People's Republic Gallery at the Museum of Liverpool, depicts the region's fight for the right to work throughout the 20th century. Unemployment on Merseyside, as the painting is called, is nearly three metres tall, and there's a lot to take in. The artist was Mick Jones, and his father was the much-heralded trade unionist Jack Jones, known to his foes as Emperor Jones. Jack was born on Merseyside and was a docker, and as such, it's not only a beautiful mural, but it really resonates with the city as well.
3: It was made specifically for the previous museum, the one before the Museum of Liverpool, called the Museum of Liverpool Life.
4: This is Kay Jones, lead curator of community history at the Museum of Liverpool.
3: And it, It's really kind of powerful and impactful and it really makes you kind of look into it a lot. There's, there's lots going on, so it's obviously a mural of lots of different people and places really depicting how Liverpool people have fought for the right to work over time, particularly from a a really kind of grassroots point of view. It's all about kind of personal organising. It's people who particularly have been left by the wayside by the government and really they fought for their own rights, come together to kind of, like I said, fight for that right to work.
4: As part of the exhibition in the Museum of Liverpool in which the painting hangs, you can hear the voices of some of those lives depicted, including this interview with the artist himself, Mick Jones, who passed
5: away in 2012. Since I'd already done quite a bit of research from the previous murals and so on, I got stuck in and um, there's lots of details. Halfway down, there's a big figure holding up what is a poem, and this figure is supposed to be George Garrett, and he was very active in the unemployed movement. And in, uh, I think he was very involved in, in very famous strikes in Liverpool. And he was also a poet and a playwright, and he ran a, a workers' theatre group. He's holding up the poem which he wrote, which is a wonderful poem, and I um, copied it all out. It's called Marching On and uh, starts Outcasts are we from factory, from workshops, mine, and sea, despised by those who used our blood to save their property. So, you've got the general idea. It's pretty heavy stuff.
4: This depiction of George Garrett and his poem is not the only link to National Museums Liverpool. In 1921, Garrett was one of the leaders of a march by the National Unemployed Workers' Committee movement. When the march reached St George's Hall, the protesters became frustrated at the lack of more relief or work coming from the town council. The organisers encouraged the crowds to descend on the Walker Art Gallery. I think we'll go for a walk, one was heard saying. A short walk. It's too late for anything else. We'll all be art critics this afternoon. We'll go across and have a look at the pictures in the gallery. Those places are as much for us as they are for anybody else. They belong to the public. A battle between police and protesters ensued inside the gallery itself. Fast forward 60 years and the Toxteth riots are another implication of unemployment in the city. But as Mick painting depicts, the majority of those protests for the right to work in the city have been peaceful. And there have been movements spawned out of those protests that have had a lasting impact.
3: The painting's got a lot of narratives in there, and I think it, it it's really impactful and powerful and really makes you think about the stories behind the people in the painting. A central part of the painting depicts Blackburn House, which was a training centre for women. Obviously, originally it was a, a school before then. So the Claire Dove um, was, was really a guiding force behind setting up this kind of training centre within Blackburn House, Claire Dove herself faced um, racism in her her fight for jobs, especially during the 1980s. And we hear from Claire herself how that impacted on her and how she felt that she needed to just set something up for herself and the community.
5: If you were a woman, it was very hard to get on any government training scheme because there was a clause saying that you had to be unemployed for at least 6 or 12 months. And most women, lone parents especially, did not sign on unemployed registers. At this time, um, there was little opportunities for women in terms of training and education uh, on Merseyside in Liverpool. And uh, a couple of us identified this need. We wanted to offer really good training to women um, in non-traditional areas, so not the usual areas that women would go into. And we wanted to put um, support systems around them. In the early 80s, technology wasn't, um, uh, technology is all around us now, but at that time it wasn't. And we felt technology might be a growth industry, but that's how foresight is a very wonderful thing. But we actually were training people in the new technologies at that time. Companies coming in wanted the skills and knowledge that our women did possess. We had a skilled workforce because that was one of the things at the time that was said that there wouldn't be inward investment because of the lack of a skilled workforce. But we were skilling these women. And what we're mostly proud of now is that there have been thousands and thousands of women that have come into Blackburn House or into the Trade Union Centre when we first started and now are part of the story of Liverpool because their lives have been changed dramatically um, where they now um, are economically independent, but more importantly, that they've added to the regeneration of Liverpool.
4: That regeneration of the city, which Claire talks about, culminated when it became the European capital of culture in 2008. Walking along the waterfront today and seeing the likes of the Museum of Liverpool, the Albert Dock, the Three Graces and the huge cruise liners that dock there, show a city... There's a far cry from those desperate days of the 1980s. Whether there's been enough progress to eradicate those football chants remains to be seen.
0: Daniel O'Connor. And that mural by Mick Jones, Unemployment on Merseyside, is really something you have to see in real life. It is huge, two and a half metres square, as they described there. But it's something you've got to be in front of. There's a lot going on in that mural. And what brilliant work they did at Blackburn House, by the way, preparing women for roles in the forthcoming tech industry. Fantastic foresight. Now, you might not know the name of the 17th century Baroque artist Elisabetta Serrani, but she was widely celebrated in her day. She was working professionally when she was just a teenager, and by her mid-twenties, she was her family's sole breadwinner. But as Ellie Field finds out, she was a pioneer in other ways too. Being a woman artist
1: in seventeenth-century Italy is hard enough as it is, but also being responsible for your family's income and welfare is a whole other matter. I spoke with Kate O'Donohue, curator of international fine art, about a rather incredible artist from our collection at the Walker Art Gallery.
6: Elisabetta Serrani was born in Bologna in 1638, um, in northern Bologna, in northern Italy, and she was the daughter of an artist, Giovanni Andrea Serrani, and. He was, in fact, uh, an assistant to Guido Reni, who was one of the most famous painters uh, working in Italy in the 17th century. And he's still very famous to this day. Now, when Guido Reni died in 1642, Giovanni set up his own studio. Now, he didn't have any sons, so he decided to train up his three daughters, who were Elisabetta, the eldest, Barbara and Anna Maria. So he, he decided to train them up as painters. Now, Elisabetta became the most successful of of his daughters, and she actually began practising professionally as an artist at the age of 17. And we know that she completed at least over 200 canvases in her lifetime. In addition to that, she produced prints, um, as well as creating a huge amount of drawings and sketches. I think one important thing to kind of keep in mind is, contrary to what we might expect, uh, Bologna at this time, in the sort of early 17th century, was actually quite a progressive place. And um, so there was access to education for women, and um, albeit certain women, say if they come from a certain background and had sort of wealthy families, uh, but women were sort of welcomed to participate in sort of um, civic and public life. So having no sons, Giovanni Andrea Serrani sort of decided to teach his daughters how to paint. And he was obviously quite open to the idea of them working professionally because all three of them did go on to work professionally with Elizabetha being the most successful. So we know that she started sort of working professionally and making money from painting by the age of 17, incredibly young really. One of the, the big major changes that happened in Elizabeth's life came when she was 24. And This is when she took over the family workshop. Her her father at this point had become quite ill and decided to take a step back from operating the family workshop. And at this point, Elisabetta was already quite famous, but her fame grew really rapidly after taking over the family workshop. And she had many important patrons uh, all across Europe, uh, including the Medicis, probably one of the most uh, well-known names, and um, so she was internationally admired. And in fact, one of the really interesting things about Elisabetta is that she was actually quite a savvy businesswoman. She knew how to market herself to her clients. So there was certainly a degree of fascination with this sort of young woman artist uh, working in Bologna. And she really tapped into that in, in terms of how she sort of marketed herself is. She painted quite a lot of scenes of, say, great uh, heroines from history, including from, you know, religion and mythology. And sort of one example of this is she painted a large canvas of Judith and Holofernes, which is based on a scene from the Bible, in which Judith overcomes this um, figure of Holofernes, who's this very powerful army general. And the story shows how Judith sort of overcomes him, intellectually and physically. Uh, And in that painting, Elizabeth has actually used her own image, her self-portrait, as the figure of Judith. So she's kind of placing herself um, there as the female protagonist. Uh, And that's something that's really quite fascinating um, about how she worked and and how she tapped into that fascination. When Elizabeth took over the family workshop, she became really financially responsible for the family and for the household. So this would have included uh, her two younger sisters who were also learning and training um, to become painters themselves. So it was certainly unusual that uh, Elisabetta was this sort of family provider. At the time, there was certainly an expectation on women to marry for financial and social stability. And we know that Elisabetta herself didn't marry in her short lifetime. So she she never married. And this is really very likely due to the fact that she didn't need the financial security. So she was able to to provide that for herself and also for her family, uh, despite her father being ill. Elizabeth's success and
1: support from her father gave her the freedom to live her life as she pleased. Elizabeth chose to use her position of power and privilege to help other women learn and created her own school of art.
6: Elisabetta sort of represents a sort of emerging social category that was sort of present in Bologna at the time, and that was sort of the single professional working woman. It was more unusual, the fact that she was working as an artist. So at the time, there, would, there were major obstacles that actually prevented women from becoming artists. So artistic practice in Bologna at the time would have very much emphasised the importance of working from live models. And of course, this would have have included the male nude. And of course, that would have been considered, you know, very essential to someone's artistic education, but would have absolutely been prohibited for for women to study or draw from the male nude. So the fact that Elizabeth's father was an artist meant that she had access to that sort of artistic education. And it wouldn't have been available to other women. Serrani was really um, quite an important figure when we look at sort of the professionalization of women artists in Italy in the sort of early modern period. So she did have male assistants working in her studio, but she also had quite a number of female apprentices. And probably most significantly, and this is something that really sets um, Serrani apart, is that she established the first professional art academy for women in Europe. Interestingly, Elisabetta Serrani sort of breaks that sort of traditional model of sort of male to female learning. So before this time, you have the the few women artists that we have are usually learning uh, or working from their their father, occasionally their husbands. But here we actually have women and girls learning from a woman artist. So these were really pioneering efforts from Serrani. And she really sets the groundwork uh, for the following centuries, where we really see an increase in the number of professional women artists working in Bologna. Um, Not only in Bologna, but on the Italian peninsula uh, and indeed uh, throughout Europe as well. So she really does sort of pave the way uh, for future women artists.
1: When Elisabetta died, she left behind an impressive legacy – she was well-respected by her fellow peers and revered by the people of Bologna. This is something not many women artists were able to achieve.
6: Very sadly, uh, Elisabetta died quite suddenly and in what was considered quite unexplained circumstances when she was just 27. And this had a really devastating impact on her family, of course, um, but also on the sort of wider community and the city of Bologna. I mentioned that her father Giovanni who had stopped working due to his illness and was sort of relying on Elizabeth's support, he did start working again to support the family. Her sisters were still quite young at the time. But also we have these very kind of moving accounts that following Elizabeth's death, there were sort of gatherings of women, which included her pupils and also some of her patrons. That's another really interesting element to the story is that many of Elizabeth's patrons were women as well. So we we have these very moving accounts of these women gathering at the Cerani household to sort of mourn this this loss of this great artist and this great role model, really. There was a very large public funeral held in her honour in Bologna, and she was actually buried alongside Guido Rainey, who is the painter that her, her father had worked for, a very famous, famous painter in Bologna. And her being sort of buried in this very public sort of ritual was an acknowledgement of her legacy as one of the great artists of the city of Bologna. so she was very much treasured in her own lifetime and she achieved that great amount of of fame in her own lifetime. and so I think it's fair to say that Serrani was far more appreciated in her own lifetime than she was, say, during the twentieth century. I think you know moving forward, there'll be a lot more appreciation and recognition of her because she She really did leave a a great legacy and did change artistic tradition and sort of set the way for professional women artists.
1: Carlo Maurizia, Elisabetta's biographer and friend, summarised her legacy perfectly in her eulogy. The prodigy of art, the glory of the female sex, the gem of Italy
0: and the son of Europe. That is quite an epitaph, the son of Europe. A tribute to Elisabetta Serrani, artist, teacher and role model. And there's much more about everything we've discussed on this podcast if you go to liverpoolmuseums.org.uk.
4: You've been listening to a podcast by National Museums Liverpool on work. Our teams are working hard to ensure everything is safe and ready for reopening in May. But while we're closed online donations mean more than anything please show your support by visiting liverpoolmuseums.org.uk forward slash donate regarding the present was hosted by jane garvey with stories from me daniel o'connor and digital content producer ellie field the show was produced by sam august at onomatopoeia post productions the artwork is by safa khan and the theme music is licensed to us by big giant circles Thanks to all our contributors and thank you for downloading.